Hey everyone, it's Carl. You're listening to the Misfortune Cookies podcast. In today's episode, Rachel and I interview my sister Joyce. Joyce shares how she met every criteria for burnout as a middle school science teacher while working at Teach for America. We talk about the conditions that caused her burnout and how her Chinese American identity shaped her experience. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey Joyce, welcome to the Misfortune Cookies podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here today. Before you share your story today, could you introduce yourself to our audience? Maybe share a bit about your background, where you were born, and what your family is like. Yeah, of course. So let's start with family because that's the closest, literally. If you don't know, Carl is my brother and Rachel is my sister-in-law. Um, and as for background, my family is Chinese American. My parents were born in China, immigrated to the U.S. in the '90s. I was born in New Jersey and grew up in Delaware and you know suburbia, part of a middle-class family. <laughs> awesome. So I know you wanted to share a story today about burnout. What do you mean by burnout, and when did you experience it? Yeah. So burnout. I think it's just helpful to read a definition from online. I guess so. I looked this up. It says burnout is a state of emotional, physical, and mental exhaustion caused by excessive and prolonged stress. It occurs when you feel overwhelmed, emotionally drained, and unable to meet constant demands. Hmm. So it's a lot. Sounds awful. <laughs> yeah, it's only a little bit awful. It's you know, just a slice just a, bit. Just a tad. Aww. Yeah. So I experienced burnout um, in my first job after college. Um, it was with an organization called Teach for America. Which you haven't heard of. It's a program that the U.S. government also sponsored. TFA is actually under AmeriCorps, and it's basically taking students, typically recent college grads, who would not have gone into education, and puts them in a two-year teaching commitment in an area that has a high need for teachers.、Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's、yeah. why I bring it. And it's very prestigious, right? <laughs> yes, it's very prestigious. Yeah. As I like to brag to my parents when I was trying to. Pitch them about TFA. Yeah, I tried to emphasize exactly how competitive it was. <laughs> yeah. So, what was that like when you were in your senior year trying to figure out life after? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> so, senior year. Yeah, don't ask me the same question. <laughs> <laughs> senior year of undergrad、uh, was really shitty. <laughs> I went to、um, Villanova University. Actually, Carl and I went to the same university. Um, and senior year just happened to be, for various other reasons,、um, really stressful. And I was taking way too many credits that I didn't need to take, but I was like, you know, for fun, right? I had no fans. It felt like,、um, and no friends, like <laughs> friends. I don't, I didn't have friends. And in undergrad, I was a bio major and was pre med,、um, and was originally planning to go to medical school. But senior year, I didn't feel ready to go to medical school, and I also didn't want to go straight to medical school because too much study. Yeah, so that's kind of when I, I guess like I heard about TFA. The website is very pretty; it's very cool,、um, and I knew I had been interested in education because there are some similarities with the healthcare field. So I applied, and I got in, and was basically there weighing the decision and trying to pitch it to my family, and. I don't know about you, but like one thing that kind of comes up in being Asian American and making decisions like this is like I felt like I always had to get the approval of family,、yep. um, you know, as Carl would know since we have the same parents. And so, as you were kind of bringing up earlier, I brought up a lot of the prestige to TFA and the competitive acceptance rate and being more competitive than Peace Corps, at least at the time when I was applying. 
and also talking about how it's a common gap year opportunity for lots of people who are pre-law or even pre-med and basically it would look really good on my resume mm. yeah yeah it seemed like it really fit the bill for what you were looking for yeah you know just a chance to dip my toe in something potentially not medical related so that i wouldn't be locking myself into decades of medical work if i ever had cold feet mm. <laughs> yeah. and how did our parents respond do you remember um, I remember them being kind of unsure and at the same time they had kind of mixed messages of like it's your decision but also like where exactly are you going to work? How much money are you going to make? All these other things that they definitely had an opinion on I guess. Yeah so anyway in the end I decided to do TFA because looking back on it honestly it's just the most cool thing I could do. Like it would make me really proud, powerful, prideful, cool. Like, it is pretty cool. Yeah, I would get a lot of respect, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Even if I wasn't going to med school, at least I'd be doing something cool. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. I looked at TFA as well and yeah. certainly considered it as an option. Wait, mm-hmm. did you apply? I did. Um, and you didn't get in? I didn't. <gasps> uh, I don't I don't think I actually oh, I finished the application. Oh, okay. All right. Actually. Yeah. All right. Uh, so mm. what happened What happened next? Like, what was the first thing that you had to do with well, TFA? I kind of wanted to stay a, a minute on the whole parent approval thing, if mm-hmm. that's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if it was important to you at that point to get their approval. Yeah, it definitely was. I think it still is in a lot of ways. It's something I'm trying to free myself of, actually. Mm. But I did want their approval, and it felt like I needed their approval because, one, they were paying for the transition, basically. They had paid for all of undergrad, although we had financial help and scholarships. They basically paid for room and board and things. But yeah, I definitely wanted their approval. Also because after graduating, senior year of undergrad is you're facing a lot of uncertainty and kind of like family is like one of the only sources of information you have and like guideposts you have after graduating. So that's why I felt the strong urge to have approval and, you know, trying to find some sort of area to put my confidence in. Mm. Yeah. Where if they approved it, then I could approve it mm. and know it was a good decision. Yeah. <laughs> the irony. <laughs> so what happened next? So basically, after I got in, we had a whole period of training. They called it onboarding. And it probably could be summed up in this very public message where it was very corporate and very, it looked really cool and everything was super planned and they, you know, catered Panera breakfast, lunch, dinner all the time. We felt so spoiled and everybody dressed professionally. Anyway, all the people that were talking to us in training were like, it's going to be so hard, but it's going to be so fantastic. You're going to be so great and you'll get through it because you're awesome people on an awesome mission to help these poor kids who come from sucky backgrounds and need you. And you're just such great leaders and it's going to be really hard, by the way, but you're going to be amazing. And so it was, that was kind of like the summary of onboarding and training, the TLDR version. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess after training, which is actually kind of fun because it was like college over again, except um, without as much work. And so I got to make some really good friends during this period, other TFA core members. And so we started moving to our placement. So I was placed in Connecticut. At first, I thought I was placed in New Haven, which is lucky because Carl and I actually have an aunt who lives in New Haven with her husband and three kids. And so it kind of worked out that I basically moved to Connecticut and I found an apartment with other TFA roommates, two or three who were in their second year of teaching and two or three others, including me, who were total noobs and just coming into this new place. 
And so we moved to Connecticut. Yep. And this was while you still thought you were going to be in New Haven, right? Because I vaguely remember this. Yeah. So the kind of like fucked up stuff about TFA is a lot of it's not within their control, but a lot of it they could have done better where they say you're going to be in a city, but that actually doesn't mean you're guaranteed a job. Being in TFA, like getting accepted, doesn't mean you're guaranteed a job. Mm. Yeah. Um, I actually had like a really good friend that I made in TFA who didn't get hired by a school. And so she had to leave the program and find like a last ditch job as, as a medical scribe. And another person who was originally going to teach Spanish and then had to get different certifications in order to teach science or math, which is completely different from Spanish in case you didn't know. <laughs> so yeah, TFA doesn't guarantee a job. And so even though I had moved to New Haven and signed a lease, they were still sending my resumes to schools in Connecticut. And so... I eventually somehow got an interview with a school in Hartford, Connecticut, which is about an hour north of Connecticut. And I did get this position, but I was hired literally a few days before school started and was suddenly on this realization that I have a lease in New Haven and an hour commute every single day for this new job that they say is way more than 925. Mm. Yeah. So, so, an incredibly stressful start. Yeah. To put it lightly, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the thing that made it worse too was, so my school, um, it was a middle school. I was assigned to teach 6th and 7th grade science, you know, for the little kids going through puberty. And <laughs> our school was in a weird transition where their old building was literally dangerous because of how old it was. So it was going through quote-unquote renovations where really everyone in the area was like, it's not getting renovated. They're just shuffling us around until they find us a new place. And so we were crammed into an elementary school nearby and we occupied their second floor in the elementary school that had twice as much space before and now had half as much and they were all crammed into the first floor. And so they had also had to hire some new teachers because some teachers left from the transition. So besides me, there are actually two other TFA core members who are new teachers, just like me, that got hired at this school as well. And so the, the transition, though, was kind of like the 2020 transition of presidential power in that we didn't have any materials set up on the first day of school. Literally, we had no paper, no pencils, no pencil sharpeners, no internet connection, no laptop, no smart board, no PowerPoint projection, no printer, no copier either. And I had no classroom decorations. <laughs> wow. The worst. Yeah. I literally, I actually remember um, the first day of class thinking, well, fuck, I have no paper. Luckily, I brought some loose leaf paper in my backpack. So um, we're going to do uh, some sort of icebreaker, right? Like, what do we do? We uh, we introduce ourselves, right? Yes, just, you know, have them, you know, write their name on a little triangle thing on the paper so that you can prop it up. And then I remember trying to explain how to fold your paper into mm. like a triangle that could be propped up. And I distinctly remember counting the lines. I think it was like 26 lines, which is not easily divisible by three. And so you kind of tell the students like nine plus nine plus eight. And they're like, wait, should this one be on this line or that line or this line? Also, I lost my paper. Can I have another one? And like, wait, do I draw a line here? <laughs> and so very frazzled beginning. And unfortunately, it set the tone for the rest of the school year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you think your situation was an extreme or just a very unique situation and that most other people were better set up for success? Or was this normal? I think for TFA, this was normal. Wow. And the scary thing is, like, a normal science teacher has so much shit to do. Like, to, I guess, give you maybe an idea in the day of life, 
I would get up an hour earlier because I had to drive. So I meant getting up at least like 6 a.m. Um, so I could leave by like 6.30. So I would get there at 7.30 to be there morning duty by 7.45, making sure to print out my last minute handouts. Hopefully the printer was working. And then get my students, bring them to homeroom, check attendance, make announcements, keep track of extra forms, help the student that still can't get into his locker even though it's been several months into school, and then mark tardy students who are angry at being marked tardy. <laughs> and then that's just homeroom. And then we have classes where I just, I say this so that you can have a greater respect, I guess, of the things that teachers have to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to prepare the lessons and make materials, classwork. They have to collect classwork and grade it and give feedback because constant feedback is one of the best ways to encourage learning. They have to put the grades in online and, you know, public schools don't have great online systems. <laughs> um, and the worst part of it all, too, is the other two veteran teachers that I worked with were um, gave me a lot of good advice. But their advice was really um, demoralizing because they would always say things like, cover your butt, which was, you know, code for cover your ass, cover your fucking ass. Mm-hmm. Where basically our students came from a low income area. A lot of them were Jamaican, actually. Great kids. As in, I love them, but they were shit, shitheads. They were shits. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so by cover your ass, it meant whenever you had disciplinary actions, as in like kids were being disruptive. You had to mark it on your sheet, whatever kind of disciplinary sheet, write them up, right? And take photos of all your write-ups and document why you had those disciplinary things. I call them strikes in my class. You have to log your parent contact to call the parents. And this is all in order so that if a parent later comes and has says like, Miss Lee is such a bad teacher. Like, my kid is so great at home, so respectful. Like, what's this shit? Why does my student have an F? You can show them your documentation and not get in hella trouble Hmm. yeah all this sounds so overwhelming how much of this could you share with our parents so they didn't actually start getting involved until things got a lot worse so the parts that made it really worse was just that it was a constant never-ending like the same thing every day the parts that bothered me the most actually came a lot from how if you haven't heard of it i'm a enneagram two And an Enneagram is basically kind of another personality inventory. Two is called the helper. Anyway, what's relevant is as a two, I found a lot of my identity and pride in helping other people and being liked. And one of the unhealthy aspects is it means I can empathize with people really easily, but also means I have a hard time just separating my feelings from the people around me. And so if my students were one not learning or having really crappy days or being disruptive or hated me, that kind of was really a toxic environment where I couldn't separate myself so much when they were upset and when they would say like, and because like this education system in general is, is really fucked up, you know, like the kids, you can't really do much as a teacher, but at the same time I knew I could do more and I felt like I should be doing more. And so my parents didn't get involved until much later when I was starting to crash. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Tell me more about that experience of crashing, especially since it sounds like you came from such a high of hopefulness and almost giddiness of this program and the corporate and the professionalism. (laughs) And then you came to this where you were utterly overwhelmed and underprepared and it sounds like undersupported. What was was it like to crash? Um, I remember trying to vent on Snapchat and with my other core, the new teachers that are also at the same school. 
And so like, I, I remember looking back at one Snapchat photo of like just a day in the life of classroom, classroom management. And so homeroom, someone would say, shut the hell up. In the first period, someone would say, don't talk to me. And they would rip all their classwork to shreds. In the second period, someone else would come in 25 minutes late and be like, I don't wanna come in. Third period would be, what the fuck do you want? And at lunch detention, people would be like, oh, it's so fucking annoying. And so all these things like just snowballed eventually. And so crashing meant I procrastinated a lot in everything sleeping and working and all relationships you know so i guess like part of burnout is the self-isolation and i guess it also has to do with mental health because a lot of people self-isolate where i would come back from school but no actually i would stay at school really late because i didn't want to drive back home and have another night of looking forward to the next terrible day and so i would procrastinate at school like quote unquote trying to get work done but really not getting any work done and complain with my coworker, but that never really solved anything. And complaining never helped me feel better, even though it helped her feel better. And so I would go home and I would at least eat, kind of, um, and stay up really late, procrastinating, like on YouTube, not preparing my lessons. So going to bed really late, sometimes like 4 a.m. in the morning, and then have to, and like, you know, you're always counting the hours in your head and looking at the clock. And then, oh, I gotta get up in two hours. And so maybe eventually I would go to bed, get up, and having no lesson plan for the day, drive, and on the drive there, I would like try to mentally prep a worksheet in my head, <laughs> and then quickly hash out the worksheet on my laptop at the school, and then print it out, and usually I would be pretty good at making it right before homeroom started, but it was just like one shitty worksheet. And sometimes when I couldn't manage that, uh, on the drive there or the drive back, I'd be blasting like the K-Love radio station. Oh. And if you don't know what the K-Love is, it's like this cheesiest, uh, okay, it's a Christian music station. And if you know me, like Christian music to me is, sounds all the same. But this was when I was in the mood of really needing <laughs> all the support I could get. Even if it was Christian cheese. <laughs> Even if it was Christian cheese. Oh. And I remember like uh, cry driving and being like, oh, Jesus, you know me. <laughs> Okay, so anyway, so a lot of physical exhaustion and mental exhaustion because it felt very daunting to prepare a lesson because in training, we it almost got overanalyzed where we would have like assessments and checks for understanding and, you know, constantly looking around and doing surveying and using different ways of communication styles and pair up and turn and talk to your neighbor and all these like lingo things that were intended to be helpful strategies but it was kind of like an uh, information process because there's so much to analyze yeah. and so yeah I was I was a bad teacher <laughs> as in I don't think my students learned much if anything under me because I was spending so much time trying to get control of the classroom and feel better that I didn't do enough into lesson planning anyway yeah not was, sure where to go from here <laughs> yeah, was there a moment where you noticed that or you felt that everything was spiraling out of control that's a great question a few things come to mind one is i was driving and you know sleep deprived and so and driving back home at night and this was winter so it was getting quite dark early and there was a truck in the lane next to me and i you know went over the lane a little bit and my side mirror actually broke off entirely because oh. i almost hit the truck <laughs> and even after it broke i was still falling asleep at the wheel i remember trying to pray like jesus you know take the wheel <laughs> <laughs> <I'm curious. laughs> yeah 
So that's one where things were like, man, Joyce, you gotta get your shit together. You could have died. Mm. Um, two, I had like one of those. If you ever been like so angry or powerless and upset, um, yeah. So basically,、uh, rage crying and screaming in my car, literally in the driveway of where I was living, but also not feeling like I could come in because at this time I was I moved in with my aunt. In New Haven, because she knew I was going through a rough time, and she basically was there to help cook for me and you know give me all the space and support that she was trying to give. But it felt like another. It was helpful, you know, to have the meals cooked and everything, but also felt burdensome because I was like, man, another person whose concern I have, who's concerned for me, and who's another, another like concern as a responsibility I have to bear.、Mm. So that was one another alarming thing, and and we. I also had like a screaming rage argument several times with my aunt.、Mm. The third thing that kind of really showed me that things were fucked up is I had a panic attack in my class, and <sighs> panic attacks aren't fun, man. I never had one before, so I had cried a couple times in my class before, which in the teaching world is a huge no-no. <laughs> All the veteran teachers are like, even if you have to go to the bathroom right now, never let them see you cry. Like, <sighs> I'm like, oh well. <laughs> <laughs> Broke that wall <laughs> a couple times, but the panic attack in class was very、um, surprising because I had no idea what was going on. I was just kind of talking to a student. She was asking me a question. It was one of those like kind of rude ones who was popular, who I did like a lot, and wish we could have just been friends instead of you know an authority student relationship. And she was asking me a question on something she probably already knew the answer of, and I was trying to sincerely explain, and I just started crying out of nowhere. I wasn't. It wasn't even particularly that bad of a day.、I、just started crying out of nowhere. Started sweating a lot. My heart was beating fast, and I was very aware of it. And then the students like ran out of the classroom, making a huge scene, like Miss Lee is crying. <laughs> and of course, like the whole floor heard basically. And then our disciplinary head like came rushing over, and he's like a big guy, and he's he's like everybody out. <laughs> made even more of a scene. And、so、not what you need. yeah, it was. <laughs> it was like I, I in the moment I was like I really didn't know what happened, and there, the disciplinary head was trying to be supportive by saying like Who did this? Like who made Miss Lee cry? <laughs>、um, and like what are you guys doing? And it really, it really wasn't anything specific they did in that moment. I remember later researching it and being like, oh, so this is a panic attack,、mm-hmm. and I also learned. When you have panic attacks, it is unadvisable to avoid the situation that caused a panic attack and make it into a phobia sort of thing. And so, like, okay, so must keep head down and keep working, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I think that's half of the. Just speaking from a、mm-hmm. uh, somebody who studied mental health and who has had several panic attacks, and I want to agree that the first is the worst because you have no idea what's happening to you,、mm-hmm. and sometimes you can confuse it with a medical condition. You don't know if you. Are having a heart attack or a stroke or something, but I would say that yes, there is a concern of developing a social phobia or a phobia around the trigger. But that that exposure should also be done in a very thoughtful, gradual. Yeah, I did leave soon after that, though, like about a month or so after. So this was、uh, near to your low. Yeah. Maybe low point. Yeah. Started thinking about quitting after that. Yeah. I've never had a panic attack. It sounds terrible. Yeah, and I'm so sorry. I never knew any of this happened. Obviously, I was n- no support to you 
uh, I, mean, I just remember like having a few phone calls here and there with you, but I never knew, you know, to the extent of pressure and logistics and terrible classroom culture and dynamics that you were dealing with. Um, what other, did you have any other kinds of support? Yeah, so... Um, and you mentioned that support can be burdensome. Yeah, too. yeah. So the hard thing with support is, I feel like part of being Chinese-American for me was the challenge of it being unsafe or just like not okay to express a negative emotion or an emotional need. And also coinciding with that, this importance of saving face, you know, of your mm-hmm. prestige, honor, and pride, and keeping up with appearances. Yeah, mianzi, which is, you know, Chinese for face, basically. And so while my, like, more American peers seem to have... Well, the situations are actually very different from with other core members. Now I look back and say I shouldn't have compared, but I definitely compared. But my one coworker, who was also a TFA core member said like complaining always made her feel better when for me it was like well what the fuck does complaining do it doesn't change your situation and so it always made me kind of feel worse and after you complain yeah yeah and and yeah and the thing is our situations were different too because she actually only taught like one and a half classes and the lesson plan was made for her by another teacher just like it was a weird situation and she also lived close by and actually like a lot of people my core year quit but they were teaching at typically high schools that were physically unsafe. And while like we had some fights in my classroom, no one ever, actually that's not true, someone did bring a knife to school, but never to the point of where I felt like physically unsafe on the daily. But other teachers did quit. TFA did assign everyone a coach. A coach had around three or four people underneath them that were supposed to help. My coach was really a great person, but it felt like she was... It felt like I couldn't make any progress because there was like all this, all these things I was pressing. And if I let it come out, I'd just be crying for days. And our coaching sessions were one hour <laughs> every week. <laughs> so I would kind of like bring up something that would be easy for her to work with, I guess, which is mm-hmm. kind of twisted to try to present problems that are easily solvable so other people can feel, feel good about solving them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I forget the question. <laughs> My question was more just, yeah, the support that you got. So you mentioned the coach, maybe other TFA core members. Yeah, this, the one hard thing, too, was the friends that I had made in TFA, the good ones, all lived in Bridgeport, actually, which was like an hour and a half away from Hartford and one hour away from New Haven. And my roommates, uh, who were TFA core members, were nice, but we didn't really get to know each other because when you come home after a long day at work, like the last thing people do is socialize. And everybody in the apartment was pretty introverted, and they also taught at this. The, everyone else there either taught at one of had taught at similar schools, mm. so I was the only one like traveling really far and pretty isolated. Yeah, so with support, um, it was mainly just kind of this theme of like shame and must not ask for help, cannot ask for help. If you are seen to be struggling, that is huge shame. I think I mentioned this earlier, but I would stay up really late, right? And so that means my light would be on. And sometimes I fell asleep with the light on, but otherwise I'd probably just be watching YouTube for very late. And one day my roommate said like, hey Joyce, like um, I went to the bathroom you know, in the middle of the night last night and I saw your light was still on and I know this has been happening like a few times now and I'm just like you know just wanted to check out if you're okay and like like you know if there's anything you can do for help 
And in that moment, I actually felt an incredible amount of shame mm. um, because I was like, fuck, I got found out. <laughs> and mm. then, you know, I played it off. And of course, she's like pretty and has it all together, seemingly, and, you know, has friends next to her and was a hard worker. And she was from Yale, too. So it was this like measuring of prestige that I was doing in my head. And I knew it, was, it wasn't like a good thing to do, but I was still doing it. And so I kind of played off like, oh, yeah, like sometimes I fall asleep with the light on, you know, like it happens like I'm I'm fine you know I'm doing okay and she really it's not like she had any more investment to ask further mm-hmm. or prod further and like we weren't even friends we we're just acquaintances so just generally feeling unable to ask for help mm. or not not even knowing like what help to ask for really yeah 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 which I think is also kind of going back to like the Asian Americanness is both very Asian and American I think because in like American individualism it's like this, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And like, if you can't fix it yourself, then you're a failure. Um, and yeah, um, so there's that aspect. And when family got involved, I don't even know if that was good or bad. <laughs> it could be both. Yeah. <sighs> it's interesting to hear your perspective now, two years-ish mm-hmm. out. Because we remember this happening to you and and granted we were from a distance mm-hmm. right we were in philly and dealing with our own stuff too but i think we did sense that something was was really wrong but mm-hmm. also there was just this really tricky triangular situation where parents were coming to us and saying go help joyce mm-hmm. and yeah we're like oh but how does she need help like but also, yeah, wanting to reach out to you and, and just this weird dance. And then we, me and Carl and our parents disagreed with how to, quote, help you. Mm-hmm. And that blew up a few times, actually. Yeah, <laughs> We I had think... some of our own screaming rage discussion. <laughs> yeah, between us and mom yeah. and dad. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it came to a head when it boiled down to the question of whether or not you should quit. Mm. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So. Or even before that, when dad wanted to. Yeah, dad came. Intervene. So dad. So I'll talk about dad coming and then and like family, I guess. And then how I came to quit. So I think one thing I retroactively learned is kind of this idea in Chinese American cultures, Chinese cultures, that family is everything. And when I'd be on the phone with my parents, you know, like weeping or just like, you know, really struggling, they would say things like, like, oh, like, please share with us, you know, like, we, we want to hear from you. Like, who else do you have but family? Like, who else is going to be here with you? And my dad literally said something along the lines of like, think of who else would care for you or pursue you like this, you know, like, would any of your friends do that? Right? Like, can you think of any of your friends who would do that? And you know, like, in my like, trying to save pride, I'd be like, yeah. it's just you know like i don't tell them (laughs) that kind of thing and so their intent behind that was was to say family is always with you so don't be afraid to ask for help or to call us for help but it contrasted a lot with how it felt growing up where as i mentioned earlier being unsafe to express uh, feelings Mm. i distinctly remember growing up carl probably remembers this too but whenever i or carl was crying my mom especially would say, like, 哭没有用, 
which means crying has no use. (laughs) So stop crying. And literally my dad sometimes would be yelling at you, stop crying. What's there to cry about? Stop crying. (laughs) That really, really helps to see the soul. (laughs) Yeah. And so I got really good at learning to talk while crying. I'm pretty good at it. It's a talent. Yeah, I cry easily too, so I have to be good at it. (laughs) But yeah. (laughs) So that like family is everything uh, having those mixed messages of like family is supportive but also like not really wanting to receive their help because it feels like it always comes with like strings attached you know mm. so when dad did come to help it was nice that he came to be with me like close like that was supportive just being there and that he would take off work and drive four hours from delaware to be there and you know encourage me because that type of like verbal encouragement saying like you can do it I believe you can do it like of course you can do it like why don't you think you can do it like it's ridiculous you're so smart like those types of things were actually the most encouraging I think the most encouraging I think what he did was he tried to solve my problems like he solves his work problems (laughs) so my our dad is a manager at a healthcare diagnostics company so he manages a team of workers and he has gone through a lot of um, professional training and development with things like Toyota Kata and A3 system problem solving. What is the root cause? Six Sigma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Six Sigma. Ask why seven times. <laughs> we should do that on the podcast. We why? should. Why? 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 <laughs> oh, man. I'll just get so much depth. No, I shit you not. We had a spreadsheet. I know we had a spreadsheet. <laughs> That was like labeled and color coded, and like we asked why five times. About and TFA. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it was for my TFA situation and various sections. And he had to train me on how to learn this problem solving thing in order to actually do the problem solving, which felt inefficient, but <laughs> I got trained kind of very reluctantly. I was kind of like the stubborn, sullen brat during this entire process, not being easily helped. And so he was quite patient with me. And also at a loss, honestly, on how to help. But this is what he knew. And so I think it is still, I think, important to recognize the sentiment behind that. Even though it is very easy to rag on my dad. I love him a lot. So we tried to spreadsheet this. And the root cause, quote unquote, came to be not having good lesson materials. uh, Where we did have a curriculum provided by the state. But it was actually also in the new transition of new generation or next generation science standards for successful students, something like that, some acronym shit. Uh, <laughs> and it was, it was basically well-intentioned, but also not fully developed. And so also very hard to incorporate, also didn't account for the different materials that schools had and did not have. So basically it was harder to use than it was to not use, even though it's what we were supposed to be teaching in class. Mm. sounds complicated yeah honestly not worth talking about anyway dad came to try to help and so he tried to come and nothing really came out of it besides spending some money on some amazon textbooks that i could use in my class theoretically never actually went through with it because that's when the quitting boulder started rolling Mm. yeah so at this point my mom was encouraging me to quit and saying like you don't have to stay like you really don't need to. It's okay. It's okay to quit. Um, which was actually really nice and empowering. And I remember actually being on a phone call with you guys. I was at a Panera trying to get myself out of the house and do some work. And I think I called you guys. And I asked if it was okay to quit. And you guys were 
very kind and said it was okay to quit and that I should quit and um, stuff like, <laughs> I don't remember exactly, but basically that it was okay to quit and I had permission to quit and I remember that and I'm still very thankful for it because, um, I don't know, I felt like as a two I had to get the approval of everyone around me to quit. <laughs> as an Enneagram two, I mean. Anyway, so that that was kind of in the middle um in the middle of December and then we had winter break where I had some time to rest and think and kind of lay comatose. <laughs> mm. Um when I came back, I handed in my resignation letter and it's funny too when I think about it because in the beginning of the school year, the veteran teachers were like, "We're so glad to have you. Like, thank you for being here. Like, please don't quit." Oh, wow. <laughs> Near the first, like the beginning days of school when we're still just getting to know each other. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to quit. Like, thank you for having us. Like, I'm excited to be here too. Like, really want to help the kids. Yeah, and the irony is when I told my principal and, you know, vice principal and other coworkers that I was quitting, a lot, most of them were like, good for you. Like, I'm glad, like, good for you and supportive. Even the one who was asking me not to quit earlier, they're all very supportive because... They all heard about how Miss Lee cried several times at school <laughs> and about how it wasn't doing very well. And so that was both shameful and encouraging. <laughs> Mostly shameful, I think, mm. um, at the time. And yeah, so that's how I came to quit. I think... So that was in December? Yeah, so that was after we came back from winter break. I handed in two-week notice in January. In January. Yeah, and was back home basically at the end of January 2019. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then bring us sort of to what happened next and more of like post quitting. Mm -hmm. What was that season of life like? Yeah. yeah. Oh man. Honestly, like I moved back home to Delaware. I moved in with my parents and they did give me like a lot of time to just like do nothing. I bummed around. I watched a lot of TV shows and anime and K-dramas and I started doing some good things, you know, like started going to an overpriced bougie gym in our community and would spend like two to three hours there because I wanted to get out of the house and because it felt good. It was like the one healthy thing I was doing for myself. Started slowly trying to get back into a church community. But I remember the months after quitting being marred by a lot of um, loneliness and still very stifled because... I felt very guilty for quitting because of the education system. You know, like, I had committed to the two years on paper, right? And it felt like a huge uh, betrayal of who I viewed myself as a person. But also, like, in terms of, like, thinking back also on how being Chinese-American influenced it, there are a couple things that came to mind, too. One being being very duty-oriented, mm -hmm. and one being where... Family is everything, and children are everything. So in terms of duty-oriented, I think in more collectivist cultures, like, there's a huge social pressure, right? Like, you do things not because you feel like it. Like, who cares if you feel like it? You do it because you're expected to do it, because it's your responsibility. It really does not matter how you feel. When I think in maybe more American cultures, you know, you do what makes you happy, you know? <laughs> um, I'm exaggerating a bit, but there's that aspect. And I remember in college also being very duty-oriented, where I signed up for this, this is my duty, even if I'm exhausted and only I have four hours of sleep, I have to do it. Mm. The other aspect of where children are everything is, I, I did 
go into this with genuine intentions of trying to teach kids. Like I do like kids and I think of my kids that I had very fondly and bittersweetly and very mostly mournfully that I couldn't do better by them because I know for sure that their science education lost like a huge, basically entire year because I think the teacher they got after that wasn't a real teacher, it was just a long-term sub which has really bad effects on their overall education. And it felt like a huge betrayal because you're supposed to sacrifice everything for your kids, you're in at least in Chinese families as I grew up. Like one example that comes to mind is growing up, uh, our parents invested a lot in our education and our musical education as well. So Carl, you know, was forced into violin yeah. private lessons for many years. I was forced into piano private lessons, although I did come to enjoy them. So they weren't forced, luckily, lucky for me. And my piano lessons were expensive. They're more expensive than a dollar a minute. And I remember like probably after not practicing and having a bad piano lesson, my dad saying something like, Joyce, like, do you know your mom? Like, do you know what hobbies your mom has? Do you know what she likes to do? And I'm like, oh, I don't know, like cook, I guess. And she's like, well, you, well yeah, cooking, but like, she cooks for you, you know? Like, what hobbies does she do? What does she do for fun? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, because she doesn't do anything. <laughs> she has no hobbies. You know why? <laughs> it's because her hobbies are raising you, basically, was the message. And for some reason, our piano tuition or private lessons were always calculated in terms of how much time my mom had to spend at her work in order to pay for our musical education. Where, like... Your piano lesson is like one or two hours of work at your mom's company. You know that? Be grateful is the message, you know? But also kind of tied into this is the fact that immigrant parents, you know, Chinese, especially Chinese immigrant parents, sacrifice everything for their kids so that their kids can have a better life. And I guess maybe thinking analogously that I couldn't sacrifice everything for my students felt shameful and felt like I couldn't do it. Like mm. if I was an immigrant, I would have gone back on the boat <laughs> mm. yeah that hits too close to home yeah it's because we are home <laughs> uh. <sighs> yeah that messaging around saying you know your mom has no hobbies because you are her hobby or she's so busy working so you can have hobbies it's mm -hmm. so mixed it's mm -hmm. so complicated like I'm sitting here and I'm even hearing it, I'm responding to it in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine growing up with that mm -hmm. and then coming to find the impl implications of that kind mm -hmm. of... And like, yeah, the, yeah like the, to ramble on about this, like thinking about recovery, right, after burning out, it was so tricky because I'm legally an adult, you know, I was like 22, 23 at that time. And I feel like in American culture, it's very different where when you're 18, like you can move out if you want to. Like, your parents would give you free reign to. And while the good thing about, like, Asian parents is, like, for at least us, if we wanted to move home, we're always welcome. Whenever you want to stop by, completely fine. But that comes with the strings, right? The strings attached. And basically, there's kind of this idea of you are our child until you are married, at least. <laughs> and oh. I think I think you guys would probably say, even after you're married, you're still our child. And by child... It feels like an erasure of your identity as an individual adult capable mm. of making your own decisions with full autonomy. But there's also like an obligation to it where, you're, where you need to honor your parents and respect what they say and want for you and almost obey them all the time. And so when I was back home again after TFA, I wasn't working anymore. However, 
I still felt like I needed their approval to go out and do certain things, you know? Like, I would hesitate to tell them if I was doing something that didn't fall under an approved category, such as, you know, doing things that will advance your career, which they would hugely support, or two, doing things that were physically healthy. And so I would always tell them if I was going to the gym, because I knew they wouldn't judge me, it felt like. Um, but if I was going to see a friend, I would be more hesitant to say exactly what we were doing. Or I f would feel, you know, this is all my own perception, so obviously it's a little twisted, but I would hesitate if I'm saying I'm going out for fun, you know, because like, well, you're having fun when you don't have a job? Like, that seems like a wrong priority list. <laughs> yeah, and, and so things kind of, actually, like, they got even more involved. Oh, I feel so entitled in, in this next example where I basically didn't apply for any jobs on my own. I just kind of sat and bummed around. I don't necessarily have an excuse for it necessarily or explanation. Like now I, I, yeah, I feel bad about it. I don't know if I needed that time. I think I did need some time, but I think my time maybe went on for too long because it was about six months. And so my parents were like, hey, like my parents were like, hey, we there's an opening at a team uh, at our workplace. Like you should apply. It's for just the entry level lab technician kind of job. Um, great opportunity, you know, easy work. You could totally do it. Basically, you should do it. And I really didn't want to because I hate lab work and I know my purpose and passion is in doing work that is relational, but it felt very not okay. It felt like a rebellion to say no when they were sheltering me and paying for my food and everything. And it felt privileged and entitled and ungrateful to say, no, I think my passion is in something else, in this type of career that I just burned out in. You don't know what's best for me. <laughs> and so I did eventually go on the interview, but luckily I, they didn't want me after the interview. So I'm actually thankful they didn't want me after the interview. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so that's kind of after TFA. <laughs> yeah. We've covered a lot of ground and you shared so much good stuff here in your story. Is there anything you want to revisit? Um, one other thing I guess that comes to mind is I guess how I reacted to the panic attack is maybe also emblematic of Chinese Americanness, mm. where the panic attack was very physical, you know, like crying, heart beating, sweating, you know very physical symptoms mm -hmm. and I feel like in Chinese culture that's kind of only when things are taken seriously. I remember when I was on the phone telling my mom about the panic attack she was like what's a panic attack yeah. <laughs> and then like I described it to her and she didn't she still didn't really understand but I think when they were hearing about like how little I was sleeping and how I almost you know crashed into a truck and died like that's when things became more real and in another way and I think that's very Chinese. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Classic. Yep. Is there anything else that you want people to take away from your story? Don't do TFA. <laughs> if you are in TFA now, get help early <laughs> and support teachers and kids. They deal with a lot of shit. And I guess, like, I hope this is helpful for anyone that might be facing a hard time at work or in their own life and just kind of recognizing burnout. Because it was mainly just a lot of hopelessness and purposeless because. I was like, I wasn't being a good teacher. I didn't see any way out of it, feeling very trapped. And so if you feel like that's kind of happening in your own life, it's okay to get help and get the help that you think you need. 
because you probably know best. And if you don't know, then just consider all the options there are that you know of and trial and error, I guess. But like, honestly, I guess one other thing is this is a very unfinished kind of story because I don't know what lasting impact this will have on my career, you know, because it looks really bad, I think, to have TFA on my resume and only for less than half a year. And I still have questions about whether or not TFA was a failure or a success, you know. Like some t- someone once, when I told them I quit, they are like, wow, good for you. And I was like, whoa, yeah, <laughs> good for me. <laughs> I did quit. Yeah, I did that <laughs> in a good way. And that was startling to me. And I still think about my students from time to time and wonder how they turned out or are turning out because they're in eighth grade now. Yeah, so it's it's not finished and... I just can't wait for this like looming TFA shadow to be completely eradicated. Mm. <laughs> so it's there a little. A little, yeah. Much less than before, but a little. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Yeah, thank you for, for having me. Courage and your bravery, and you know we love you so much, <laughs> and we're so glad that you are who you are. Thanks. I love you guys too. <laughs> All right. Okay. Bye. Bye. Everyone. bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the Misfortune Cookies podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with your friends. Subscribe or give us a follow. Also, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, comments, or you would like to share your story with us, send us an email at misfortunecookiespodcast at gmail.com. Bye.